Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. The summer of 1816 was a strange one, at least for a few folks gathered in a lakeside house. There was a lot of sexual tension in the house. There were lots of brilliant ideas. There's lots of reading and talking. And there was a contest, a contest to see which of the friends could write the best ghost story. And considering this was a gathering of some of the best writers in the world, we're talking about a pretty serious competition. The great romantic poet Percy Shelley was there, as well as Lord Byron. But the ghost story that we most remember from that summer was by a teenage girl named Mary Godwin. And the story she wrote was called Frankenstein. Authors Anthony Brandt and David Eagleman argue that creativity thrives when brains are pushed together and ideas bounce back and forth. Creativity, they say, has made people entirely different from any other animal. And the question of why and how is an important one. Anthony Brandt is a composer who teaches at Rice University. David Eagleman is a neuroscientist who teaches at Stanford and hosts the PBS series The Brain. They are co-authors of the new book, The Runaway Species, How Human Creativity Remakes the World. Welcome to you both. Thanks. Great to be here. Thank you, Kara. So, uh, David, let's start off with that kind of magical, crazy summer that produced Frankenstein. It actually produced another story by someone also in that circle of friends called The Vampire that then influenced uh, Bram Stoker, who wrote Dracula. What does it teach you about how humans, um, like, work with each other to heighten creativity? Well, there's a reigning misconception that creative artists function best when they are alone, when they turn their backs on the world. But one of the things that uh, Tony and I have been uh, thinking about for a long time and writing about is this issue that creativity is an inherently social act. And we are not islands unto ourselves, but instead, everything that you come up with is actually stuff that's remixed from your environment. In other words, we are vessels of our own space and time. And going out there and eating the world and absorbing everything around you is is a critical part of the creative process. And I actually think, just as a side note, that uh, if we want to get artificial intelligence systems that are really interesting and creative, what we should do is make a whole bunch of AI systems that are all trying to impress one another uh, by coming up with something interesting and surprising. And then that's more like what our species is. What is the science um, on, on how we developed creativity in the first place and whether it was interrelated with other people? Yeah, um, there are two things. The science generally is that we, you know, when you look around at a forest, it looks essentially the same as it did a million years ago. And the animal species that live there are really doing the same sort of thing generation to generation that they always have. When you look at a city, it's like a motherboard that's risen up out of the ground and, and humans are doing something really incredible and special. And the question is, what is it about our species that is so different than than all the others on the planet, even mm-hmm. though our brains are essentially the right, same right. as theirs? And, and the answer has to do with the expansion of the human brain. There are several aspects of that, but the one I'll just mention briefly is that we get the prefrontal cortex, which is this area right behind our forehead, which allows us to unhook from the current space and time that we're in and Mm. imagine other spaces and other times and to ask what if questions and run simulations. Right. And this has actually been the main important thing for creativity is being able to run these what ifs uh, constantly. 
And then when you get people together with one another and they're trying to, um, you know, constantly surprise and impress one another, um, you get these incredibly rich things happening. And that is the birth of civilizations. Hmm. Hmm. Tony, it's, it's interesting what David says, because you think of little kids as thinking, what if I was Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz? What if I was Snow White, mm-hmm. right? Like, what if I was, you know, Buzz Lightyear? What if, right? But actually, and I didn't think about this uh, before, but adults spend a ton of time thinking, hmm, what if I married that person? Or what if I took right. that job? Or what if I moved into the city? Or maybe, like, what if I moved out to the suburbs? We spend so much time living in, essentially, I guess, a pretend world, right? Absolutely. That's one of the things we really try to demonstrate in the book is that this smooth line from the natural generation of possibilities and alternative futures and rethinking our past, what if I had bought that car, to the great blossoming of culture and human imagination. And even our language, one of the most important things about it is not just that it refers to the outside world, but it also refers to the impossible and the things that haven't happened yet. And it's ways for us to share that with each other all the time. So it's a fundamental part of being a human being and so built into our life that we almost barely notice that it's constantly humming along. And what do you think, like, running all those scenarios all the time in our heads does for us that we just don't even, that we're just not even aware of? Makes our thinking incredibly flexible. That's the thing that, you know, just is this great gift that we naturally carry around in our mind. And that ability to constantly be generating alternatives and different possibilities. Um, You know, I I love this one quote that we found Richard Feynman saying that what he made him a great physicist was he kept figuring out different ways to arrive at the right answer. (laughs) And so if he ever ran into a roadblock, he always had another way of approaching the problem. Hmm. And that's just the natural way that human beings in general approach life. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller talking with Anthony Brandt. He's a professor of composition at Rice University. And also with me is David Eagleman, a neuroscientist and host of the PBS series The Brain. They are co-authors of the new book, The Runaway Species. So, uh, David, you have pointed this out. But one thing that is amazing to me is how quickly we go from like being impressed by creativity and inventiveness and something new to just eh, shrugging our shoulders. It's sort of old hat. What does it say to you about the fact that our brain gets acclimated to new and awesome things so incredibly quickly? Yeah, this is the this is the interesting part is we adapt to whatever the baseline is. And for any of us with children, we know that they grew up in this world where, you know, for example, smartphones exist. And that's just part of the background radiation. Right, that's right, just right, the right. world they're right. in. And so... Um, yeah, the, the interesting part is how rapidly the avant-garde becomes the new normal and the, the cutting edge of something becomes less sharp. So, you know, the funny part about human brains is that we seek novelty all the time and we, uh, you know, we get used to things rapidly. And this is part of the beauty. It's because we don't like, th- how do I put this? We, we like the familiar, but we also want the novel. And so where we end up is this range in between, right in between the familiar Mm -hmm. and the novel. Mm -hmm. And by the way, one of the things we write about, which I love, is this idea about skew morphs. Have you ever heard of these, Kara? No, no. So skew morphs are are these things that are left over from previous generations, and we still use them all the time. So just as an example, you know, like the save button on your computer is a little floppy disk, 
which you, you right, haven't right, even right, seen right. one of those little discs. And, right. and, and, and right. on your on your <laughs> smartphone, the button that you press to make a phone call is is an old phone handset. That's right. You, that's right. That's true. It's not it's the funny smartphone when my, itself. Yeah. It's funny when my. Uh, daughter tries to like I, i've occasionally been in a hotel or something they have an old phone and she does not ha- know understand how to hold it because it's <laughs> like she's never seen it but you're right you use the icon but like she doesn't understand you know that there's like a receiver it just doesn't get it <laughs> uh, exactly so it turns out our lives of course are filled with these sorts of skew morphs i mean even electronic books like on the ipad when you're reading ebooks you choose them from a bookshelf and right. and you and you turn the pages of them right. and so on and and you throw things away in a trash can and put things in a shopping cart and so on. So what this represents though is we are in this funny cool position between not wanting things to be super familiar because we get bored very easily as humans. And yet the the flip side is they can't be too novel. They can't be so novel that there's no mm-hmm. umbilical cord to our past. We need mm-hmm. we need things to go at a certain pace. And that's why when people are creating anything new, there's actually this sort of social cultural component to it where you can't do something so insanely new that no one even gets it. It's right. got to be somewhere at, at the right distance. It's like right at the border of the possible where, where it's, uh, it satisfies people's need for novelty, but it's not unfamiliar to them. Uh, Tony, do you think of you know, music and sculpture and paintings as kind of, I wonder how you fit them into this, like, drive towards creativity. Are they, in some ways, like, exercising our muscles for being creative? Because they're not putting a roof over our heads, necessarily. Right. Do you know what I mean? You know, if you make a, you know, big sculpture, it's not particularly doing anything, but what is it? It must be doing something if you're, if we're making, if we're driven to make these things. So, you know, you think about somebody like Beethoven who went deaf in the middle of his life. And the miracle of Beethoven isn't all, only the music that he wrote, but he kept writing music when he was never going to be able to hear it himself. And what utility did it even have to him? He couldn't experience it directly. And I would say the reason is, and in every single art, is that basically inside of our heads we have this wonderful software that just takes in the world around us and is constantly trying it out in different ways. And that so energizes it and so enlivens us that we want to make it real in some way. We want to bring it out into the world. We want to share it with each other. And there's this virtuous loop, which we've been talking about, between the social nature of the ways we engage each other and our need for surprise and this wonderful constant bubbling that's going on in our thoughts. And, you know, Beethoven's thoughts kept bubbling his whole life, and he just had to keep putting it down on paper and sharing it with people. And I think in that sense, what any artist is doing is fundamentally connected to what any human being is doing, uh, no matter what field they're in. But how do you, um, Tony, think about, you know, if a school district is really trying to do well on tests, you know, that are Mm -hmm. about math and about, you know, and and about reading. And you're thinking, well, gee, there's all these coding jobs and they pay six figures right out of school. And that's amazing. We've got to get kids into these. And then somebody says, well, uh, how about playing the trombone? You say, well, that's nice. Gee, but really, we've, we've got to get these kids into jobs. How do you have that conversation about the trombone? So, I mean, one of the things we argue is that the arts are the most overt way to study the creativity that underlies any discipline. 
And you can do that from when you're very little. There, you're not dealing with dangerous chemicals. There's not complicated equations you have to deal with. So the kids can all already getting a working knowledge of how creativity works and the principles of proliferating options and going different distances from community standards to test things out. All of that can be practiced when you're five and you're six and you're seven years old. Um, so I would say that's one reason. Another is that scientists, you know, you talk to people in those fields, they all, all of a sudden begin to realize the creative part of what they do. Programming takes creativity, you know, blending the different existing mm -hmm. uh, algorithms together right. to create some new functionality. And if you're constantly conditioned that rigidity of thought and arriving at an answer is, as fast as possible is the only way to make a living, you're really cutting off enormous possibilities. I wonder from both of you, finally, um, if there's a, a downside to creativity that you worry about. I mean, like an obvious one is we very creatively created nuclear weapons, mm. took a tremendous amount of, of, of brain power and people thinking in ways that, you know, people hadn't thought before. But I know there's some obvious downsides to that. So, uh, David, do you want to go first? And then, Tony, are there things that you worry about or is there something like a downside or a dark side to creativity? I think we're unable to worry about it a little bit, just in the sense that with all human progress, there's always two sides to the coin. There's the the, the good and the bad that comes out of it. Um, you know, we also get nuclear energy and ways of uh, fueling spaceships to go right, into the right. next uh, star system and so on. So um, th this is something that we always face in, in, in human progress. But on average, I'd say we're doing pretty well. And when you look around at the at the animal kingdom around us, everyone's just doing the same thing they've always done. And there's something really, really special <laughs> about what humans are doing. Yeah, I would just say that, you know, the creativity in our brain is just one feature of what makes us a human being. And we're complicated beings and we have our flaws and the social norms create certain problems. Um, it shouldn't stop every child from having a chance to, to have art, in a sense. You know, and yes, sometimes there are bad outcomes, but like David says, most of the time we're, we are pointing towards a brighter place. And, and you know, we just have to keep uh, nurturing and cultivating that and also try to, you know, be a more beautiful, constructive society. Anthony Brandt is a composer and professor at Rice University. David Eagleman is a neuroscientist. He teaches at Stanford and is host of the PBS series The Brain. They are co-authors of the new book, The Runaway Species, How Human Creativity Remakes the World. Thanks so much to both of you. Thank you. Thank you, Kara. As I just mentioned, Anthony Brandt is a composer. And this piece of music that you're hearing actually comes courtesy of his own creativity. It's from the third movement of Four Score, which is for clarinet, violin, cello, and piano. We will have a link to more of his work at our website, innovationhub.org. ¶¶ 